Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Graham, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast, mate. Thanks, Owen. Uh, I, I would like to start with a bit of quick fire, if I may. Uh, questions that hopefully you can give us a concise, maybe 60-second answer or so. Um, no hard and fast rules, of course. But uh, just to bring out a bit of the investing before we go back in time and, and look at how your investment philosophy has been shaped by your career and your, uh, your journey through life. So if I may, I might start with, what's the best place to ski in the world? <laughs> well, I definitely have to uh, say Whistler Blackcomb in Canada. That's where I lived for a few years. And it's, uh, yeah, for anyone who hasn't been there, it's just gorgeous. And on top of that, the terrain is unreal. It's, I think if you put together all the Australian ski fields together, it's as big as Whistler Blackcomb. So that gives you a, an idea of its size. I uh, I would have to agree. Uh, I've skied. I haven't skied everywhere. I've skied Japan, um, North America, obviously Australia, and uh, yeah, I love I love Whistler. I love the village. Everything about it is fantastic. So if you do get the chance, uh, get across there. So yeah. mate, what 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 do you do to relax? Like when you're not investing, when you're not thinking about companies, what do you do? I'm definitely a nature buff. So uh, another blessing of Vancouver is that it's got beautiful forests around. So if I'm looking to de-stress or something like that, then I'm out in the forest. Uh, I'll grab a coffee or something at a local cafe and just go for a walk, listen to some music or listen to the bird sounds or something like that. I really like it. Uh, we just talked off air about Stanley Park just outside Vancouver there, and it's, uh, it's a very, very special place as well. Um, yeah. Okay, my last one, mate, is if you could only pick three investing I guess, metrics or factors, if you were looking at a set of company financials, what would they be? Uh, I think free cash flow would have to be at the top. Mm -hmm. the, that's definitely the lesson I've learned over the years that free cash flow matters a lot more than almost anything else. Companies without cash don't last very long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then from there, probably return on capital that a lot of mistakes can be corrected over time, given enough time and a decent uh, underlying kind of return on capital that the companies are earning. And another metric, uh, probably, probably operating profits to 
interest expense. Um, hmm. Strangely, just yeah, I maybe I mean these, we all learn individual lessons, but I've figured out that when companies start running short on being able to pay the uh, their interest expenses, then bad things tend to happen. So I think you can avoid some issues by looking for a very big interest coverage ratio. That's interesting. So we've got free cash flow return on capital and um, operating cash flow uh, to interest expense. Uh, yesterday, I sat down, Graham, with a fund manager who's been in the game for 20 years and has outperformed in that time. And um, he said something very similar, except the, the one where he probably differs is he looked at the, the balance sheet to look at the, I guess, the financial strength of a business. Um, but it's kind of the same principle where you're with the operating cash flow to uh, interest expense. You're looking at the, you're trying to stress test the financials and look at the, the kind of the risk side of the equation. So he also said free cash flow as well. So um, it's a common theme here, which I, which I really like. Yeah, but that's I'm, a big one. I think the so many companies will, and, and I think it just, it's very easy to fixate on a company's profits, but mm. that number can be manipulated in so many different ways. So if you really want to know what a company is able to earn, then I think it's it's just clearer to look at the free cash flow. What is it actually spinning out in cash that can then go to dividends or buybacks or that kind of thing? Profits, yeah, mm. depending on what company you're looking at, they can be pretty meaningless. If you were to quickly look at a set of financials, uh, what would you, and say you've got the cash flow statement, what would you be? How would you be calculating free cash flow? I'd be looking at the operating cash flow line, and then usually deducting the uh, capital expenses. Then sometimes you need to make other adjustments because they might they might have something hidden there that say they have to keep purchasing intangibles for. I don't know, some licensing or something or other will come up that, yeah, if you keep seeing the purchase of intangibles coming along, then you might want to include that as a capital expense. Or uh, if they keep making acquisitions, then mm-hmm. although that's that's technically discretionary, some companies just love to do it. So you've got to wonder how much cash they'll actually have left over for shareholders if they keep buying other little companies. Mm. Yeah, it's, but yeah the, um, big two, the big two are capital expenses and then operating cash flow. Yeah, that's um, that can that continuous acquisition um, spending is something that we see a lot, um, particularly uh, in like the roll-up style companies that um, aggregate smaller businesses and, and bundle them all together. Hopefully for a better for a better business in the long run, but not always the case, mate. Yeah. Um, I thought we might go back in time because I read uh, an interview, a written interview on the Intelligent Investor website, and. I was fascinated by so many things and so many comments you had, even just like one one liners that were kind of really intriguing to me. But one of, I guess, one of them which which stood out to me was basically how money seemed to be part of your childhood in so many different ways, which is very unique, even amongst investors and entrepreneurs that I speak to. It's very very unique. So maybe you can cast your mind back to your your earlier days and. Try and tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were, what you were doing, and if money and investing played a role in your journey. Yeah, there's the only way to describe it is that I was just obsessed with money as a kid uh, <laughs> from a very early age. When I think about stable personality traits uh, throughout my life, that's, uh, yeah, there was probably no coincidence at all that I ended up becoming an analyst later on that from when I was four or five, I was very interested in anything to do with money as lots of kids are but uh 
I would be collecting coins or I would be trying to sell things. One kind of family um, joke was that I would be asking my parents what I owned. I was obsessed with this idea of ownership and then trying to sell things back to them. So I'd say, oh, is this toy mine or is this couch mine <laughs> or that kind of thing? And then if they'd say yes, then I'd go, okay, well, how much do you want for it? <laughs> um, <laughs> even though as a five-year-old, they bought everything for me. So yeah, there's, there's those kind of uh, stories. I was always trying to do something, but um, didn't actually get onto investing until a bit later. It was, it was more just, I don't know, some interest in the concept of money, I think, as a, when I was really little. Did you start any businesses or do anything like that? Or is it more um, arbitraging the, the cost of acquisition on these items <laughs> around the home? <laughs> yeah, I think that was, a, that was the big moneymaker. Um, <laughs> I didn't really start any business as a kid. I did have a, a <laughs> uh, I haven't thought about this in ages. I did have a stand that I set up uh, trying to sell pot plants um, mm. that was on my the front of my parents' house, like on the street. Um, but there was no foot traffic. <laughs> the plants were like ripped out of the ground and put into a pot. So I, I don't remember if I sold anything. Maybe maybe one of the neighbours was told by my parents to come and buy something from me. <laughs> I don't remember. But yeah, I remember setting up these this plant stand. <laughs> That's my first failed business. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got to learn. What does Michael Jordan say? You figured out you know thousands of different ways to fail uh in order yeah. to succeed <laughs> so. for all the kids out there go into lemonade not plants <laughs> yeah i like it um mate what's interesting to me really fascinating i think this is going to weave its way through our conversation today is uh, you studied psychology at, at uni i believe not uh b- business or commerce i could be mistaken about this but um if so like what what pushed you towards that Yeah, that's so I did study psychology, but it's actually not what I started Uh, when I was in uh, in my final years of high school. uh, I was very, very interested in genetics and molecular biology. Uh, I was right into anything science. And so Mm -hmm. that was my dream later in high school. I went in and studied molecular biology and genetics at Sydney Uni. But then after a couple of years doing that, I was actually only one semester away from finishing that degree. I just realized something occurred to me that I just didn't want to spend my life in a lab, that I think I liked the, uh, I liked the subject and I found it very interesting, but there was a limit to how much I wanted to, to consume about it or to actually spend 40 years inside a building in a lab, like looking down a microscope. So yeah, when I, when I figured out that, I had to quickly change uh, majors in order to finish the degree. And psychology had always kind of interested me, but I'd never had much experience with experience with it. And it was able to be tagged onto the science degree I was already doing uh, without losing any credit. So that was yeah, almost an accident going into psychology, but I'm very glad I did. I think it, it should be taught in schools way earlier than I learned it. It would have, uh, yeah, mm. I think makes a big difference to, know how your brain works a little better i um the the longer i go in investing the more uh i see psychology accounting for the success of of investors and, and different people in the market and um yeah i am envious of you studying psychology because um, i just think there are so many things that weave their way through not just investing but the way we behave in mo- with money the way we can understand management teams or 
or people in businesses and incentives, you know, the, the famous Charlie Munger lines. Um, okay. So yeah, what, 100%. What you... I think that, sorry, go, the, go uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that almost all returns are mainly psychology driven. People always assume an analyst role is very mathematical or it's to do mm-hmm. with financial statements constantly or something like that. I would say that stuff accounts for 10% of the returns in my job that almost all of it is down to just thinking through processes, knowing how to ask the right questions and then finding answers to them, uh, particularly questions about your, how you operate yourself. Mm. Do you, while we're on the topic, do you have any stock standard questions that you might ask a management team or any ways to try and understand, um, I guess, the person behind these companies? Yeah, I don't actually like talking to management all that much. I've never met a management that I wasn't, that I didn't leave the meeting feeling better about the company. Mm. And that makes me nervous because managers tend to get to the top position because they're good with people. And yeah, I think that that ends up just leading to more biases. So Mm. yeah, once you start, especially in my position where we're making public recommendations, once I've got to know a management, it's a lot harder to criticize them publicly and sometimes managements deserve to be criticized so yeah in general i try to keep my distance but when i do i mean sometimes it's it's important to ask them questions that you don't like they might have some very simple answer to something you can't figure out by uh, just Mm. looking at financial statements or that kind of thing so Mm. yeah i do speak to them sometimes but uh generally i think you're better off steering clear of managements yeah they certainly can be charismatic uh yeah yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, out of out of uni, what did you do? I, I, if I'm not mistaken, from your bio on the web website, the Intelligent Investor website, it mentions mentions that you worked for a, a professional gambler. I'm intrigued by what you were doing, what this in, entailed. Yeah. So that was definitely a, uh, a, I don't know, a pivot point in my career because at that point. I just finished my psychology degree and didn't really know what to do with it, that I hadn't, I'd kind of dappled in investing, but hadn't really, uh, I don't know, taken the bait yet. And at that point, I wasn't really sure what to do. I didn't, didn't really want to go into psychology as a clinical psychologist. Uh, but yeah, I was kind of leaning towards something more businessy. And then it was just coincidence that a friend of mine worked for, uh, for this investor or for this, yeah. So it's a. I won't go into just for privacy. I won't. I won't um, talk too much about them. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, a rich lister out there who is obsessed with gambling and has made a lot of money on it. And so I worked for a team of around twenty, uh, working for him and his syndicate to place the bets on his behalf, basically on horse races, and look for mispricings in the market, mm-hmm. in the the betting markets. That is, um, and. Anyway, so yeah, I got the job kind of with a bit of luck that a friend of mine already worked for him and yeah, I was able to get the job that way, but it was, yeah, just fascinating. It showed me a whole different world and it got me very interested in investing after that, even though there's an irony that starting off as a gambler turns you into an investor, but there's a lot of overlap. Mm. It's not the gambling, like you're going and buying a lottery ticket. Uh, we were looking for, for mispricings where 
the odds being paid on a horse were different to its underlying odds of winning. And then, yeah, that's actually very similar to uh, stock picking. You're not always trying to pick a winner. You're just trying to look for where there's a uh, margin of safety in kind of Benjamin Graham's terms. Hmm. So just to double click on this for a moment, how would you determine the odds of winning? Would you source your own data on like fundamental data on these horses or um would you use like publicly available odds and uh, results you know that you yeah. try and predict i i wasn't one of the ones who was handicapping the horses uh that was being done by a different team but they would draw on all kinds of data that was either publicly available or they would be doing they would even have people at the tracks looking at things like is the horse sweating are there public puddles on the track are there I don't know, how is this jockey performed when it's 12 p.m. race versus 6 p.m. race or something like that? That, yeah, they would go into hundreds of little data points and then put it all together and then their uh, algorithms and whatnot would figure out an underlying odds uh, and then we would base base our bets on that. But even there, the margin is very small. So it's not as if you can... You're just looking for slight advantages, which is so similar to the stock market too, that you're not going to get crazy mispricings where the horse is guaranteed to win and it's paying 100 to 1. You're looking for a tiny little percentage points here and there of differing opinions. And yeah, I think that there's that's very similar to stocks where you should probably go in with the idea that the stock market is pretty efficient, that everything is reasonably priced for kind of the underlying risk. But that doesn't mean that you can't find some irrational behavior. Mm. And that was going to be my follow-up question there is basically like the win rates and, you know, the, 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 I guess the, a lot of people see um, gambling as, you know, I do a multi and it's, you know, 14 times, it's paying 14 times my money or something like this. And they're just basing it purely off, what the what odds they're given in the app or online um, versus people who are doing the fundamental research. And this is, you know, we could draw, I guess, um, an example of people looking at stock prices and using stock prices to influence their decision-making versus the fundamental value and intrinsic value of companies, um, which is, I guess, what you spend a lot of your time doing today. Um, how did you get the job at Intelligent Investor? Uh, I think just because I had an interesting resume that the job was advertised. I'd already heard about Intelligent Investor. I'd subscribed to it in the past and so knew about them. I was always, when I started getting interesting in investing, I picked up pretty early that I was interested specifically in value investing. That philosophy resonated the most with me. And uh, so I knew about Intelligent Investor because that's their, their, the philosophy they kind of go through there. Uh, and then from that, I, I just applied for the job, but I think my resume just stood out a little bit because it was like genetics, psychology degree, ski instructor, professional gambler. <laughs> it was just <laughs> random. I think that they, they might've liked the diversity of background instead of it just being a, say a degree of finance. And then I work at a bank or something. Mm. Did you do this? Have you done the CFA by this point? Uh, I had finished two of the levels by that point. And yeah, I did the last level while I'm working there. Mm. Uh, can you, do you remember any of your earlier memories from 
around that time when you joined II. I mean, there's so many interesting uh, characters in the team over the years. So um, is there anything that jumps out to you? Of the, in, in what sense? In, in the, did you have any formative lessons, I guess, from any of those analysts or um, the writers in the team who, you know, we, we know today, um, whether they're managers or whether they're analysts or, you know, just commentators in the market? Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the whole team has been, I've been there now nine years. And so I've seen, um, well, actually not that much turnover. One of the benefits uh, mm. there is that we're a pretty tight-knit family, that there isn't actually a lot of turnover in the analysts. I think that gives us a lot of continuity. Um, but in terms of uh, individual lessons, yeah, I mean, I've learned so much from James Carlyle, Nathan Bell, from Greg, from, uh, yeah, all of them had something interesting to share and, uh, mm. yeah, either about business or about writing or about uh, just general life lessons even. They've been a great set of mentors. I could, you yeah, know, talk about each of them and, and point it out. Um, maybe uh, I might bring uh, a question that I prepared to ask you today, which is about writing. Um, who would you say someone, okay, I'll, I'll give you a bit of an inside scoop here, Graham. Someone told me that they, <laughs> that they think you're the best writer of the analysts and intelligent investor. And that's why oh, wow. I, I wanted to ask the question, how did you improve your writing? Um, and by listening to I, them <laughs> yeah, and maybe if I could be so cheeky as to ask who you think is who, who, who writes really well in the team. The, well, I mean, I think all of us have to be good writers for one, because mm. I think a big part of our job is actually acting as a translation service that mm. uh, financial media, financial news, company reports, all of that, it's just loaded with jargon. And so one of the early lessons I got from um, Nathan, the research director, when I first started, uh, was that we should be writing for our grandmother which sounds kind of ridiculous, but that really is the audience that I should think of when writing, that it means that you then simplify it down a bit uh, because they might not know what, I don't know, free cash flow yields mean or something like that. And uh, that, yeah, you want it to be nice and clear, uh, but also not assuming that they aren't intelligent or anything like that. You're not talking down to someone, you're talking as a peer to someone. And, uh, yeah, keeping things clear, concise, and to the point, and also entertaining. I mean, part of our job is to keep you reading. So there's mm. also, uh, we try to make it a, into a story. It's more interesting that way for us and for anyone reading and memorable that way. When you write a, a company report or an update, do you imagine talking to anyone as you write it? Because when I write, I tend to picture someone the person who is reading it and that helps me bring the the writing to that level so i imagine say for example i'm talking to a 55 year old walter who might be my customer avatar or whatever and i think what would he want me to say at this particular point and would he want me to expand on this point as i go through and that helps me make sure that i'm not dumbing it down too much for walter but i'm also not using too much jargon that he won't feel like he's intelligent enough to read it um, I don't know if, if, you, if you've ever reflected on that, but I find that that really helps me make sure my writing is near enough to that level. Yeah. 
I don't think I've ever, I, I don't think I actively think of the audience, strangely, of who I'm writing to, but I do definitely try to write conversationally, that mm. write as you would speak, instead of you write in one way and you talk in a different way. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, good writers tend to, you forget that you're reading the written word, you're, it sounds like you're in, I don't know, a conversation with someone. So yeah, that's, that's the style I tend to stick to. And then uh, I think the trick is just making it as simple as possible. So many times we just add words superfluously to something because you think it sounds better, more, more flowery or something like that. But in general, mm -hmm. if you can cut a word, cut it, it's going to sound better to the reader. Yeah. I find that some analysts feel compelled to write more as if I know all this stuff here's the information so you can know it too but really what the author what the reader would want is you know what do you think and if i want to go and read the annual report i can read the annual report but what do you think yeah. about things and i've i've noticed distinctly in your writing that you speak conversationally and you do insert some humor and, and wit along along the way which um it, it makes it far more enjoyable but anyway i would like to jump back to your story and um during the the gfc uh, you made an, your first investment, I believe, which those were very dark times for people that weren't investing or weren't across the stock market or economy at the time. Uh, shares were falling massively, one of the worst falls in over you know, 120 years of Australian stock market history. In fact, I think the calendar year of the GFC was the worst calendar year ever uh, on record for the Australian stock market. So, why did you choose to invest at this time in the market and how did you go about doing it? I think I just, it's strange. When I first, uh, my first purchase was before I had actually found value investing. So I didn't know these concepts of a margin of safety or the Mr. Market uh, story or anything like that. But I think during the GFC, one thing which I did know kind of, intuitively somehow uh from my childhood or whatever was was kind of warren buffett's idea of you should be greedy when others are fearful and mm. so seeing all the fear around me i think i just recognized this was a strange opportunity that rather than getting scared with the crowd i thought okay well these guys are all losing the plot so maybe it was a psychology degree i don't know <laughs> uh but yeah i thought people were I think I looked at the companies and I thought they could not be worth half of what they were a week ago, that either the people are wrong or the companies are, um, weren't valued what they were, weren't appropriately valued at one point or another. Um, so I knew something irrational was going on and you know, I was pretty naive. I mean, my, my purchase of Macquarie was insane in hindsight. <laughs> uh, so it was, I didn't know what I was doing, but I had the, at least the idea of the best times to buy are when the market panics. Mm. If I may quote uh, one of your responses to a question in this interview, that the written interview that you did, uh, I quote, it worked out well. Shortly after I bought it, just $2,000, the company launched a capital raising and the offer price was far below the current share price. So what I did was, <laughs> so I did what any conservative value investor would do. I got a $15,000 personal loan to participate in the raising <laughs> and took on an absurd amount of risk but I ultimately made a quick $4,000. I, I read that and I was thinking, wow, what a way to make a first investment. Not only is this, this potentially the scariest time in investing history, 
but it is here you are getting a personal loan to participate in a capital raising for an investment bank when investment banks around the world are borderline going bankrupt. I just, yeah. I just thought you it must have better. some thick skin. <laughs> yeah, go yeah. on. The, the, the story actually continues from there. So yeah, that's how, that was my first investment was participating in a Macquarie uh, equity raising and I took out a loan to do it. I didn't have any money at that point. Um, but then I did the next craziest thing you could think of, which was someone had explained to me what CFDs were, contracts <laughs> for difference. And so I decided to take my 15 grand from the capital of the loan, take my four grand profit, so like 19 or uh, so in total. And I put it all in CFDs after that. I then bought a bunch of stocks based on what their charts were doing. I mean, I was just nuts. Do not try this at home. <laughs> uh, I then bought that, but I happened to time it uh, right at the bottom. This was in like March or something, 2009. And so over the next, I can't remember exactly the dates, but it would have been six weeks or seven, eight weeks or something like that. Um, my 20 grand turned into 50 grand. Uh, and I then thankfully, had an epiphany when I started, I think I must've been around that time that I started reading Warren Buffett stuff. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm being very risky here. <laughs> and so I took it out, took those profits and that kind of started me uh, from there. So I was just, I mean, all of that could have, I didn't appreciate the risk at all. I could have lost all my money and more uh, and really like screwed up my next decade, but I just got lucky. Um, it was not intelligent investing. It was pure luck. So you turned effectively $2,000 of equity into $50,000 in a matter of months. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had to pay back the loan, so it was less than the 50, but it was, um, yeah, that was a good start. <laughs> I haven't had a year like that since, so maybe I should get back into CFDs. <laughs> uh, and we say that in jest because CFDs are you know, contracts for wealth destruction um, because they yeah. add so much leverage and they go both ways, which a lot of people don't realize until it's far too late, which is so is sad in itself. And um, But wow. Um, yeah, okay. it literally could have, if I just timed it slightly differently, it could have easily wiped me out entirely and just left me with, with worse than zero because I could have owed back the loan. Um, mm. So it was just crazy. Like, do not use any kind of, CFDs don't get loans out unnecessarily. I'm not totally against using leverage, but uh, I mean, mm. you need to be very careful about what you're doing and use it as a garnish. <laughs> uh, what does Warren Buffett say? Um, smart investors don't need leverage. And um, if you're not smart, you shouldn't be investing or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're smart, you don't need it. And if you aren't, the then one. you shouldn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, okay. So you actually, you, you actually had some, uh, this one liner that was in this part of the interview, which I found fascinating. Um, and you said the lesson, it's not the times you don't know what you're doing that will get you into trouble. It's the times you know just enough to think you know what you're doing, end quote. And that reminds me of, um, I think it was, uh, is it Sir John Templeton? Or uh, one of the quotes, when you know it just ain't so, what, what you know, but it just ain't so. Um, I'm not sure if you know that quote as well, but I found this fascinating because I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there's this thing called a humility curve in investing. And it's basically, we start off very simple because we don't know what we're doing. 
we quickly add complexity, more and more complexity. And all of a sudden we're in CFDs. So my experience with CFDs <laughs> and my first experience with CFDs was, I think I lost $5,000. I can't remember if it was on the first day or first week. Um, and then from that point on, my investing has just come down this humility, humility curve and just got simpler and simpler and simpler over time. Mm. And maybe we can just expand on this point about when it's the, it's the times you know just enough to think you know what you're doing. Uh, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that point for me. Yeah, I think that that's true, that uh, you don't tend to get in trouble with the you first of all, don't get in trouble with bad ideas because you can figure them out that they're bad. Someone will tell you like, you usually have a little bit of an idea that it's, you're doing something stupid. It's when you have a good idea that you take to some irrational extreme, uh, that's when you get into trouble or the times when you know just enough to feel confident, but not enough to know the risks properly. And that's where I got in trouble with the CFDs was, I mean, a lot of people had never heard of them. So they're not going to get in trouble with CFDs. But I knew a little bit about them. They seemed like a good idea, but I just didn't know enough to appreciate the risks. And yeah, better lucky than smart. <laughs> mm, indeed. Um, you, you mentioned something that is, was kind of new to me, the concept of this, uh, which is this idea of performance-based goals versus mastery goals or base goals. Uh, and I've heard of things like the 10,000 hour rule. I've heard of um, Annie Duke's resulting, which is the bias to judge a decision based on the result rather than the decision-making process, which I see in investing all the time. In fact, Ben Graham wrote about it uh, many, many decades ago when he said, if investors see, if they get, if they see something happen three times, they almost take it to be true in investing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping you can explain what is a, a performance-based goal versus a mastery-based goal and how you've used that, those concepts to improve the way you think and make decisions? Uh, I can't remember where I actually learned about that. It could have been in a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, which I really like. Uh, but mastery-based goals are basically the goal is to develop a skill or to progress in some way. The goal is the journey. Uh, Whereas a performance-based goal is what investing is kind of built around, which is you're measuring how you apply to the skill that you're looking for. You're measuring, yeah. An example would be in say running where a performance-based goal is you're measuring your time that you ran and a mastery-based goal is you're measuring how well you're developing the skill of running. Are you taking the right form? Are you doing the right, I don't know, prep beforehand with protein powder or something or other. I don't know. I'm obviously not a runner, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the point is that mastery based goals are about perfecting the development of a skill. A performance based goal is measuring the application of the skill. And most of the time we spend too much of our energy focused on whether things went right or wrong, instead of focusing on whether we're getting better at the process that will eventually lead to being to a better outcome. But the point is that your goal should be to get better, not just to measure yourself at the end. Mm. And how do and you I actually find that, that people, how do I apply it? Did you say, sorry? Yeah, it's your investing. Well, it comes up all the time because, uh, yeah, the industry is built around performance. So 
I can measure my performance over the past year down to a decimal place. Uh, mm. However, that isn't necessarily the best thing to be focused on because if you do, it can cause all kinds of short-term behavior or it can uh, cause you to miss errors in your process, which something might be working really well for a period of time, but be missing some large risk that uh, means you blow up once every 10 years or something like that, uh, that you really should be focused on the development of a skill. And so in my job, it's a lot to do with reflection, actually, where if a stock is doing poorly, I need to think back of whether I would make that the same mistake, or sorry, the same decisions along the way, that just because it turned out poorly or positively uh, doesn't mean you were you were doing the right thing. That I've had stocks that have done well, like my early Macquarie mm. uh, one. I've had ones that do ridiculously well that I was actually making really bad judgments on. That if I kept doing those same judgments, it would eventually get me into trouble. And there are others which have done poorly where I haven't earned a very good return or lost money on. But looking back, I still made the right decision based on the information that was at hand at the time. And if you keep making those kind of decisions, then eventually it evens out. Uh, it's very, see, this ties back to gambling because in gambling, if you're always trying to pick a winner, you're going to end up losing because almost always the horse mm. most likely to win is going to be overvalued by the, the betters, that people get too confident that the best horse is going to win but that leaves the opportunity in the horses that aren't doing very well. So most of the advantage is usually in the, the long shots where people think, oh God, this horse only has a one in 10 chance of winning. But so many people believe that, that they end up charging like thousand to one odds on it, which if you do take that bet enough times, you end up winning over time. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I love those kind of counterpoints where um, we invert logic and um we can see that playing out in so many different respects in the market um i find like i find one area which is really interesting where we see this uh, kind of arbitrage of expectations is around uh, even if you do look at more expensive companies um if people if enough people say it's overvalued and how could it trade at that level well then that means that it may not be at its full valuation because everyone <laughs> is thinking that so yeah. um so that's kind of the the counterpoint to that logic um is actually something that i i re i remember seeing and i remember um thinking a lot about this when i was a, a funds management researcher uh i would i would see the performance of of, of managed funds and and this is very well established in literature that investors chase returns they do it in super funds they do it basically everywhere you look they chase the returns yeah. if it's not an individual stock it's the managed fund and if it's not that it's super and we see that most of the time the, the next year and the year after the years that um, those investors do poorly and even investors inside managed funds underperform the managed funds themselves because yeah. they're constantly buying and selling yeah. and yet what people don't realize is that performance is actually past results what you actually buy if you're investing in one of these things is actually the process you buy the process yeah. and i don't think enough people understand that you when you look at performance results sure you you know that tells you something but it's actually the process of that that in that investor or that fund follows um yeah. i'm hoping maybe you can just reflect on your yourself for a, for a moment um Given you seem to have an ability to step outside and, and look at things 
um, particularly when there's a lot of volatility and opinion or emotion around a certain uh, matter, how you think you're affected by you know, investor biases, if you like, or common biases that we succumb to, whether it's confirmation bias, recency bias, whatever you like. And if you have ways of managing those for yourself. Yeah. Confirmation bias is the big one, I think, that it it definitely affects me. I mean, it affects everyone to some degree, but uh, yeah, I've caught myself many times falling for that trick where uh you end up looking for information kind of accidentally that already confirms your existing belief. So it's so easy with stocks in particular that once you've bought it, suddenly it becomes special. It's not just a company that you're choosing. It's your company that you have chosen. And so you end up looking Mm. for good news and very often you're going to find the good news and overlook the bad news that's coming out. Uh, You'll underweight something or... Uh, just ignore it or think that it's, I don't know, poke holes in it that, yeah, you end up becoming too confident in the things you already own. And yeah, I've f- fallen for that many times. I'm, I might be falling for it right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, in terms of how you kind of counter that, I think it it's one of the hardest things to do, but you have to actively seek evidence that you disagree with, which I mean, yeah. That's kind of tough. <laughs> you mm. you need to know the counter arguments to your arguments better than the other guy. Uh, yeah, you want to be an expert in why you're wrong, basically, and mm. then still make the decision knowing that. But mm. yeah, that's tough. We don't go around looking for why we're wrong. We go around looking for why we're right. Mm. I find a lot of investors, particularly newer investors, get paralyzed when they start to think this way. They um. They, they, they go into an investment and like, okay, give me three reasons why this company is a good investment right now. And they're like, okay, there's, you know, it's growing revenue. It's in this particular trend in this market and it's got a founder CEO. Those are things that I know are good. Now, okay, what are the three reasons, you know, you wouldn't buy it? And they go through, you know, it's not profitable. Um, <laughs> the CEO has been selling shares and um, it's, you know, I don't know what its gross margin is going to be. And all of a sudden, they do that. And most of the time I find people then are more negative than positive. Um, three points either mm. side, but they're paralyzed and they think, well, I don't know what to do now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if you've ever come across that, but that's something that I've observed with particularly newer investors. Interesting. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think it's one way that you can kind of take yourself out of it is to, instead of thinking of what you would do with your own portfolio, Think about yourself managing someone else's. Would you, you might like this stock, but would you recommend it to your mum and dad to own? Mm. And if you find that you wouldn't recommend it to anyone else you know, then you've got to ask why you're so special that you should be owning it. Um, Yeah. Mm. Also thinking about what you would do if you had your portfolio all as cash. I sometimes do that and think that it's a useful exercise is instead of having, looking at your portfolio as what you already have, Think, okay, if I if everything was sold and I just had money again, would I buy those same things back or would I put it somewhere else? And I think that kind of gets around this bias of sunk costs that we have that once you're already in something, you kind of want to wait it out to get the price that you originally paid or, I don't know, if it's doing poorly, just hang on a bit longer. Mm. 
I like it. Um, it prompts, yeah, not not just sunk costs, but all the, you know, letting the, the the tax tail wag the dog, so to speak, as well. And yeah. We have if we're sitting on capital gains or even losses, we sometimes think, well, not yet, not right now, because of the tax, and then that ends up controlling, I guess, the destiny of our capital. Um, which which books or maybe even investors or funded letters or anything has had a profound impact on the way that you think and invest? I think Carol Dweck's uh, mindset book, the one that I mentioned before, that mm-hmm. would be top of the list. I would put that on every school kid's uh, reading list. It just, the book is about the difference between having a uh, fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, which sounds very hippy dippy. And I mean, that might turn off some people, but <laughs> We do have, I think that what I liked about the book was that it's by a psychologist and it's just a bunch of studies, but all of these different studies point to the same conclusion, which is when you teach people that they have fixed qualities about themselves or about something else, that when we say to someone, oh, you are intelligent, Mm -hmm. then a couple of things happen from that. They don't end up trying very hard because they're afraid that if they try and fail, that it disproves this compliment that someone has given them uh Hmm. and they end up being more likely to cheat because they again don't want to find out that they're not living up to this standard uh and it's actually similar to the whole mastery and performance-based measurements that we were talking about before where if you instead focus on uh being able to grow and improve and recognize that setbacks are can be temporary that they're just learning experiences and that kind of thing that you'll actually do a lot better over time. That when children, say, are taught these kind of principles, they end up striving to practice. They don't cheat as much. They want to uh, keep challenging themselves to get better um, instead of trying to live up to this preconceived, fixed idea of who they are. So, yeah, I think the mm-hmm. mindset changed my mind a lot and it there's lots of evidence in it that says that it it's a good one to have. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of other books, on an investing, uh, in the kind of investing context, then it's, I think it's very hard to go past Warren Buffett's writings of all kinds. Maybe the last couple of years have been a bit uh, less interesting, but his, um, his early writings, if you can get your hands on his initial partnership letters from when he was in his 30s, they're super interesting. And there's a book by, I can't remember, is it by Lawrence? kind of the essays of Warren Buffett, basically someone has compiled all of his uh, later writings and letters to shareholders into a very readable book. And yeah, so I would recommend that one. Mm, I like it. I think I actually might have it here while I'm on the road. Uh, Very good book. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I I like um, how it's organized. I like that one from psychology and one from a value investor. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy it. Have you ever been to Omaha and been to the shareholder meeting? Yeah, I went a few times. Um, the last time I went was 2015 for the 50th. So it's been quite a while since I went back. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. I really loved it there. It felt like, uh, I mean, it really was like a concert. <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's just a nice atmosphere to be around all these people that have similar, I don't know, similar mindset or vibe, or you're all there with a purpose and it really did feel like Woodstock for capitalists. <laughs> mm. Mm. No, that's fantastic. Have mate. you? No, I haven't. 
And so I was going to go a couple of years ago, but then COVID hit. So and I'm ah. just, oh, I'm hoping I can get there in the next year or two. So fingers crossed. Just do it. There, yeah. 96 and 90, you're an investor. <laughs> I mean, go for it. Whatever you can do, just do it once. You'll, uh, I don't <laughs> I think you'll regret it. it. Yeah. Okay. I'll, um, I'll let you know how it goes. Um, yeah. So maybe uh, just, you know, before we wrap up, there are, uh, there are, a couple of things that maybe I could just pick your brain on. These are more company-specific things. And um, in an email that we exchanged, I asked you for a couple of companies that you, you've learned things from or, you know, in your experience dealing with them, um, what you found out about them, which was interesting, and you've incorporated into your process over the years. And the companies that you mentioned were CSL, Sydney Airport, and Berkshire. I mean, I mean you just kind of covered Berkshire a bit with Buffett. Uh, what, did, what did they teach you? Uh, CSL was a really fascinating one because it's, first of all, a very complex company. Mm. Uh, there's lots of moving parts. There's lots of things that were that you won't ever really get down to understand that, I mean, no, no outsider is going to be able to look at the, I don't know, the latest factor protein for hemophilia and understand what the scientists <laughs> at CSL understand. Uh, but you can still make judgments about the company, about its direction, its processes, things like that. So... Yeah, what CSL kind of taught me was uh, I did a tour of its facilities in the US uh, some time ago, but first of all, it showed me the benefit of scale, that that the scale it works on is unmatchable. They have a 33% share, I think, of the market. And I mean, apart from those three competitors, the other two competitors that are in that market, no one is going to start a competitor for CSL, <laughs> that mm. you're stuck with these three companies and it would just be impossible to match the cost advantages that they have. Uh, it also taught me about what a sustainable competitive advantage is, that CSL, its medicines in many cases are have special orphan drug status or they're unable to be competed against for, I don't know, other reasons. But yeah, when you've got these life-saving medicines that are have the market all to themselves, there's no competitors or very few competitors, and the competitors tend to play nice in terms of pricing, that they're not trying to undercut each other, uh, the three main plasma makers, uh, plasma medicine makers, that that can lead to some very interesting economics, especially when you tie it in with the scale advantages that I mentioned before. So, yeah, CSL's just got it's just a phenomenal company. So I think seeing that from the inside and then studying mm. it over the years has just shown me how good things tend to happen to great companies. Mm. And it's been such a success for so many Aussie investors um, who yeah. owned it over the decades. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, who so, have ha- thought this 100-year-old yeah. business could still be churning out at like 10 15% growth? It's incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. How about Sydney Airport? Uh, Sydney Airport was uh, maybe a slightly different reason where I've been following it for the better part of a decade. And what it showed me was that if you find a high quality business, you need to just ride out the the bumps that over that decade, it had gone, I think there was three 20% drops, a 40% drop and a 60% drop in its share price. Mm. But if you had held on all the way, then you more than eight bagged your money. So yeah, you've got to, I think, focus. Sydney Airport is a good example of where you need to focus on the horizon, not what's happening today. And 
yeah, we experienced that through the pandemic too, where people were very focused on what was happening in terms of the shutdowns. Uh, but if you could keep your eye on how things might be afterwards, then you've done pretty well. Mm. Um, it's been a really in- interesting business to watch over the years and scared people at times because of the leverage involved and um, yeah. all the all the different reasons. But through it all, I mean, it's the what is it, number one airport in Australia and it's um, the gateway to Sydney. So yeah. um, talk about competitive advantages. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Dare I ask about Berkshire? I mean, there's so many... So many lessons I imagine from this, but um, maybe if there's one that stands out to you that you could share with us, I'd be very grateful. Boy, one, yeah, I mean, Berkshire is just a whole pile of lessons. Um, boy, maybe, I mean, the one that comes to mind is just strive to be rational. Uh, that <laughs> they didn't do anything mind boggling in any one year. But by doing lots of little rational things along the way, it just compounds over time. Uh, that, yeah, lots of small correct decisions can still get you uh, where you want to be, that you don't have to make some amazing, I don't know, some amazing call that your money is going to triple on some stock or something like that, that just try and do lots of little smart things and that'll compound over time. Mm. One, one foot hurdles. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great, mate. Uh, well, this, this has been a really interesting conversation going, weaving through your journey um, from, you know, trying to sell plants that didn't work out <laughs> uh, to, to psychology, gambling, uh, to value investing and writing. I mean, I've, I've learned so much today, Graham. So um, yeah, it's, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. And um, for listeners who want to hear more, from Graham and from the team at Intelligent Investor. Be sure to head over to intelligentinvestor.com.au. There'll be links in the show notes. You can use a coupon code RASK, so R-A-S-K. Uh, when you sign up, you can get a free trial and um, you know learn from Graham, but not just Graham, Gaurav and all the rest of the team too. So um, be, sure to, be sure to look into it, Graham. I just want to say, I know this is your first long form interview where you've talked a lot about your journey. So I really appreciate you taking the time from Vancouver to join me here in Australia. It's 10, it's 11 a.m. here in Australia. What time is it over there? 6.10, ready for dinner. <laughs> Just in time for dinner, mate. I, once again, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share some of your wisdom with us. So um, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank and you. Have a great night, mate. You too. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player. 
to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.